Hey guys, Jeremiah Zimmerman here. Hope you're all doing well. Today's episode is the very first uh, of the live series of podcasts. This was recorded just last week in Brooklyn. I want to let you know that the next one is happening June 20th at the Arte venue in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Peter Evans' new ensemble with Clara Latham, Ron Stabinski, Maz Swift, and Shana Dunkelman. June 20th, 8 p.m. 20 bucks at the door. Be there. All right. Here's my conversation live in front of an audience with Toby Driver. So thank you guys for coming. Um, I didn't realize that Memorial Day was such an important holiday to uh, people who enjoy goth-influenced experimental music. Um, Allegedly, it is. Uh, but thank you for being here. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I host a podcast um, once a week. I talk to musicians. Been doing it since 2013. The first musician I spoke to is Toby Driver, so it seemed appropriate to have him be the first person um, to do a live podcast with. Um, Toby and I have toured together. We've made records together. He's done the artwork for a ton of my records. He was... Um, one of the, the, the wedding party at my wedding, so he's a very important person to me. Uh, anytime I, I think about a new musical venture, he's one of the first people I think of, so I'm happy that he could be here, happy that you could be here. Um, thank you to Melinda and, and, and Oliver for, for having us, and um, Toby's gonna play for about 45 minutes with String Noise. String Noise is uh, Pauline Kim Harris and Conrad Harris. Um, of all of Toby's stuff, the, the ballad stuff that he's going to be presenting is really some of my favorite stuff. Um, after they get done playing, we'll take like a 10 minute break and then we'll do the, the conversation. Um, so I hope you guys stick around for that. Uh, Toby Driver.
So, uh, again, thanks for coming out. Um, this is a first attempt at uh, something that normally takes place. You guys should come in closer because this is going to feel weird otherwise. <laughs> it already feels weird, but... It's, it's not a show, it's a, it's a panel. From the very beginning. Um, did you guys notice the candle that was burning? So Toby, um, when he showed up to sound check, saw that they had a projector here and said, oh, let me pull out my computer because I have a video of a candle. Um, <laughs> and the, if you listen to the very first podcast I did uh, five years ago, Toby was the first guest, and the very first thing you hear him say, we sit down in my home office, home studio, is he's like, man, can you light a candle or something? We need, <laughs> we need something a little moodier in here. So it's... It, it's setting the mood. It's setting the mood. I, I'm really into them. Yeah. I, uh, seemingly, yeah. It should be, yeah. So, because of the vibe. Yeah, and they're better than light bulbs. Because they're easier on your eyes. No, it's they... Yeah, yeah, there's just, I don't know. Yes. So, I feel like, and something that you and I have in common and we've talked about a lot is using reverb as a compositional tool. Yeah. And I think for you and me, it's a compositional necessity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've tried to write stuff without it, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, it's, it's just everything just, just sits there. Yes. You know? Yeah. But, I mean, I feel like uh, you, especially with some of, like, the, are, are you guys familiar with a lot of Toby stuff? You guys know uh, a record? Thank you. Uh, there's a record called Tartarland, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, not too, not so dissimilar from some of the music you did tonight. It's guitar and violin. Um, but I feel like that reverb and that delay, like having those, the, the, the notes sort of blend into each other is... Yeah, it's sustained. Yeah, uh, I, I think I brought this up before, maybe even when I talked to you, but uh, Mark Rebo's chapter in Arcana One uh -huh. um, resonated with me a lot because in it he says that uh, guitar is the saddest instrument because you know you pluck a note and then it dies immediately. Right. Uh, and even more so when you're talking about like a nylon string or something. Not right. so much with electric, even though he's usually like an electric player, but. Um, but yeah, if you take an acoustic and you just play, it's just the note starts dying as soon as it's created. You know what I mean? I that, anyway, that's what he says in there. And, and so um, um, I think that even when you play music without, without reverb, which is you know, the, this creation of a fake space, mm -hmm. you just hear, you hear it dying in this kind of like false, uh, even though the reverb, re reverb is fake, uh, when there's no reverb, it's also fake because there's this fake lack of space. You know what I mean? Well, no. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Like if you if you have a record. Okay, first of all, if you have a recording, right. it's fake. <laughs> yes. Of anything. Yes. Okay, so um, so you record a sound, and then uh, it's it sounds like the space that it was recorded in, mm -hmm. um, combined with the space that you're listening to it in. Um, combined with, I mean, I would say currently people usually listen in environments that are not dedicated to listening, so it's, it's a... Yeah, so, so it's this, it, you know, it's the opposite of reverb, even, reverb being fake and addition of space. Yeah. Not having reverb is a fake absence of space. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like something, like I battle with this, and it always makes me feel kind of like a phony in some ways as a musician, is that I feel like to get music into people's ears, the real challenge is to have them hear something the way that I, I hear it, you know? Yeah. So that often means like putting a microphone on things and cranking up reverb because, you know, these dramatic things sort of like they, they accentuate it, you know? Like I think about it like if I was going out to a restaurant, like I, I'm going to put on a jacket and a, and a shirt. Like I want it to sound like the best version of what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, the th one thing that reverb can do is that it forces the music to be in the space that you want it to be in, mm -hmm. instead of relying on the space that the person's listening to it in. Right. But do you ever feel like a cheater? Um, well, it's fake. Right. <laughs> it just is, whatever. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. 
It's not live music, but even, okay, so I like doing it with live music, too, so. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's like you and I have both, like, this to me, you, you just play this beautiful concert, and again, I'll say it, like, this stuff that you've been doing, the ballad stuff, is, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's my favorite of all your stuff. Uh, I Great, listen, thanks. I come back to it the most, okay. especially last winter when I was living upstate, I was mm. listening to the first record, like, on loop. Oh, sure, I know what you mean, yeah. Um, but this setup, and, you know, I've gone through various versions of electronics that I drag around with a clarinet, like, it's a musical setup, but it also, like, represents, like, I think something wrong with us. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah. we were saying out front, you're like, why am I dragging all this shit around? Yeah, I know. Um, I w and, and, you know, this goes back to, I, you know, I tried to write some music without reverb, and I just, I just wasn't happy with it. So yeah. it's just kind of always the same kind of thing. Yeah. I, I make an attempt, I really do make an attempt to, to go small, and then it just... It never works. It doesn't work out. No. Yeah. When you first started, um, for those of you who don't know, there, I think it might exist somewhere online. Toby made some tapes when he was a kid called Spoonion. They were like weird four-track, kind of like ween-sounding things. Yeah, but it wasn't even four-track because I didn't have one of those, so it was tape, a tape recorder Right. with a double tape deck. Side A to side B. Yeah, so you, you, you record on one, and then you put another tape in the other one and then you record from one to the other one while you're singing over it. Right. And then you take that one right. and you put it in there and then you record that one onto that one while you're singing It's over like it. being a fucking caveman. Like, I don't know that. I, I, re, I mean, this I is, you know. What's that? I love the 90s. Yeah. I wish it was still the 90s. <laughs> no, but like, you learn these tools. It's literally, like, you could do like a sociological study of like, young stoned cavemen mm -hmm. learning to manipulate technology to, to transmit something, to yeah. you know? Yeah. When you were doing that music originally and you kind of discovered that world of, of layering sounds. I think that's important because the point hmm. of doing that was to layer stuff. Right. I didn't care about making, I didn't care about making a recording of me playing one thing, you know? I, I right. cared about making a recording of me playing a lot of things at the same time. Right. Yeah, that's what it's all about. But that sense of discovery, like, I, I feel like, you know, and you and I have talked a lot over the years, you know, kind of around this stuff, I feel like that sense of discovery of when you add one sound to another, when you manipulate the sound in some way, um, is really, like, still the driving force in a lot of ways mm -hmm. uh, of how we kind of end up with what, re you know, resembles a final product. It's like food. You know, you take one ingredient and you add it to another one. Like, someone, someone figured out that you could put black pepper on a strawberry... Or was it? Is it strawberry? Or I mean, raspberry? It's strawberry. It's yeah. You know what I mean? Like right. that's weird. You wouldn't think of that, but but it's supposedly really great. Allegedly. Uh, yeah, yeah. So right. So you know that's that's kind of like music. Right. But do you? I mean, even like so you're writing for the violin, which I didn't really think about it until tonight. But you've been writing for violin for a really long time now. I know that just kind of occurred to me the other like the other day too. The other day being like last year, but right. recently. Right. I was like, oh yeah, I've written a lot of violin stuff, and I've never written for flute. <laughs> but I like flute. I, I really like it. I just never, I never have done it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I like it. I'm, it's a cool instrument. But you know, what I mean, it, it's it's yeah, I've written for a lot of violin. But I, when you think about your violin writing, how much are you thinking about the players who are playing it, and how much is it based solely on what you think the music is asking for? Um, I think, I, th I think back in the day, it was, um, 60% thinking about the player, 40% thinking about the music, mm -hmm. maybe even more of the player. Mia? Mia, yeah, Shomik and I were just, this fellow over here, we were just talking about that a minute ago, because, um, she was the first violinist that I was writing for right. in my band, and, um, just her understanding of of rhythm was really strange so i had to come up with i had to come up with a way to to express rhythm that she could understand yeah. and that the band could play along with sure um and so that's how the music ended, sound, ended up sounding was based on her concept of rhythm yeah for the most part um which is it was it's sort of flexible and it's in its yeah time. yeah because you can't <laughs> I, <laughs> I i mean i mean she you know she's the best she, she's the best yeah but you wouldn't be able to really rely on her to nail a, a complicated rhythmic thing. Right. Uh, until um, maybe you, like, I don't know, 
But there Wait, was that, uh, sorry, go ahead. Anyway, anyway, so, um, so, so instead of, for her, you know, it was like, it was, you write these phrases uh-huh. and, um, and, uh, and then see how she expresses the phrase. And then you can write a suggestion of, of the rhythm and how it might be expressed. Um, uh, but super simplified, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like quarter note, two eighth notes, quarter note. Like sure. it's really simple. And then she would play it in this pretty organic way. And then, um, and then the band would play around that. Right. Um, yeah, or, or like if, even if it was just a duo, just her and I, then I had a lot of freedom to just kind of completely improvise my rhythm based on how she was expressing her rhythm. And so yeah. it was like this kind of like dual improvisatory composition because like all the parts were really specific, but the, but the way they were played was not specific. It was felt. Yeah. Um, but then anyway, then um, I wrote for her for years and then she, then she moved and we stopped playing together. And, um, and then, I, uh, then Timba was the next violinist that I wrote for. Timba Harris. Yeah, and, um, and he... Um, He's like the opposite. He's like a technician for sure. Right. So, um, so I, I know I got some advice from him and from Mario, because um, Mario know, Diaz de Leon. Yeah, because right. Mar- Mario's kind of like my mentor as far as classical stuff goes. Really? Yeah, because like I, he. I, no, I mean no. Mario's the Mario's <laughs> the best. I just didn't know that. No, yeah. I just like I uh, when I when I have a question about classical stuff, I ask him because because of because of his experience. You sure. Know what I mean. He's like the guy that I can, I'm like, oh. You're talking about notation and. Well, not, not really notation, but just more like, what would you do? So what I asked him in this case, I was mm-hmm. writing some for Timba, and I was, like, I was like, hey, I have this really, really, really specific rhythmic idea, and, it, and, it, and, it's, um, and it's pretty unusual. So I was like, what do you think I should do? Do you think I should write like a kind of simple version of it and, um, and then just tell him to kind of play it off like behind the beat or something like that or do you think I should write a million dotted things right. and and just make it look stupid but but you rely on him to play it. and Mario was just like oh you should write it exactly the way you want because that's because he's like that's what performers do that's that's what they specialize in right and they like they like figuring out how to do it <laughs> so I was like oh really okay I'm gonna get really sadistic now and uh and I wrote an extremely sadistic part for him yeah and he and he nailed it it was awesome yeah he loved doing it so that's I mean uh, where yeah. are they where's uh Pauline and Conrad <laughs> yeah no, sounds about right yeah yeah cool so 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 that's you know then then I changed my approach to start doing that, but that but that also depends on who the performer is because if sure. they're, if they're a person that doesn't enjoy figuring out how to, how to express like all these double dots and crap then. But do you conscientiously think like I've been in the rehearsal room with you, and you know as far as conventional music making goes, I'm like literally the worst, uh, literally. Um, <laughs> but he, you know, a lot of the structures in Toby's music, uh, whether it's K.O. Dot or, or something like this. There's a lot of complexity, and sometimes you don't notice, sometimes I don't notice the complexity just because the music's crafted in such a way that it's just very enjoyable to kind of get lost in. But if you want to take it apart on that level, it's there. And do you make, do you think that you make a conscientious effort to build complexity into the music for what it does to the musicians who are involved? Like, it keep that edge that it gives? Um, yeah, I, I do like that, but... Um but no, I don't. I don't do it. I don't. I don't put complexity in the music just just to give the musicians an edge. The the thing about the the edge that I give the musicians is that I make them learn stuff, uh, you know, very fast. I'm like, okay, you know, learn this. We're recording next week, kind of mm-hmm. thing. And then they're like, oh no. Ah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, that that's a cool edge. But as but as far as the complexity is just that's just more um, a way to keep myself interested. Yeah, I think I, I I've tried to simplify and, and write. Right, you know, back off a little bit, and mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I a lot of the time when I do that, I find myself getting bored with my own music, and then I then I'm like, oh well, okay, I have to do, I have to change this in some way. Yeah, uh, and then it ends up just being a little weirder after mm-hmm. that. Was so uh, going back to Tartarlam, which was this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you haven't heard it, it's it's fucking amazing record. Um, it's a piece for violin and guitar with improvising trumpet thanks to Tim Burns uh, and percussion. And I mean, was that the first time you incorporated improvisation into what you did? Um, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Was that, when did that become an interest? 
Well, um, it, you know, that piece was not an improvised piece. It was only improvised in terms of like how Mio was playing the rhythm, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but everything was written. And, uh, and then we did this mini tour with this band from Toronto called I've Eaten the City. Uh-huh. And they're, uh, like a, they're basically like a Canadian super silent sort of. Okay. Do you know that band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so they're kind of like that. And um, so they are just doing free improv opening up for Tartar Lamb. Um, and, uh, and I really thought they were really amazing. And then while we were on that tour, I had the idea. I was like, oh, why don't they just try to improvise while we play the piece? And, um, and then so we did one show where they did that. And I thought it was my favorite show. Mm-hmm. So, um, so then um, when I got home from that tour, I was thinking about doing a record. And originally, I was thinking about having them be the band that was on that record. Um, but they're Canadian. And we were going to do the record in Seattle. And, uh, and you know, Tim, uh, Tim Burns and I uh, were talking about doing a tour out to Seattle. Um, so it ended up being Tim and, and Andrew Greenwald, the drummer from Tim's band, Friendly Bears. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because I wanted to work with them, but also because they were local and, and we wanted to take that trip anyway. And it was something that I've eaten the city, I think. They would have wanted to fly out there sure. and stuff. So, yeah, it just didn't really make sense. But what did you feel improvisation specifically added to the music? Oh, it added, um, well, first of all, for me, playing, playing that stuff on tour every day, it, it was you know, pretty much the same every day. It's a composition. So having a random improviser uh-huh. made it be different every single day, right. <laughs> which is cool. And, and also, it could just be like whatever instrument. You know, it could just, it could just make the piece different. Right. Um, and that was my, my entryway to it. I was just like, oh, this is a way to... To, to have this piece be different every single time and let's just see what happens because mm-hmm. the, the, the composition itself is the anchor and it's not really, there's, there's not really, like what's the worst that could happen? It, you know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> the piece is still going to be there. Um, and, um, and anyway, and then after we just did it a few times and especially with Tim and Andrew, it, uh, it just kind of became this um, sound of that piece that I then realized that I hadn't really heard that much of that like you have a composed duet and then you have a, another duet over it improvising mm-hmm. I mean this, I, I hadn't really heard of that yeah so I thought it was it was really interesting yeah yeah oh well, I mean then correct me if I'm wrong but you started tonight's concert with an improvisation yeah completely improvised yeah when did that first become interesting to you as because in the pre with the thing you were just talking about, you were playing notated music while other people are improvised. Yeah, well, I I um, I I've, I've been liking improv more on bass since Blood Mist has been playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but Blood Mist doesn't play that much. No. Um, but then when I was on tour, I was doing the Sideman tour, um, over the winter, and um and and we had to start off the set, um, with a drone for about two minutes. And uh, it was Ron from KO Dot and me. We had to start off the set with a with a drone, um, and you know what the artist really wanted was just drone on E, um, right? But, but I was like, oh well, you know, we can make this a little bit more interesting than just a drone. So then, every night, uh, Ron and I had two minutes to have a little fun, um, <laughs> and then and then you know and then the set was like the same every night, right? Of course, like right. and and. Uh, so like that, those two minutes were the only moment on a tour where we had something different. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and but but the, the the extra special thing about this is that all those venues are really big. So um, you, you say there's like a show with like two thousand people, and I get to like play this like noise, like downtown shit. <laughs> Through this gigantic PA in front of two thousand people, <laughs> and they're just they just accept it, you know. And I was like, "That's pretty funny." <laughs> so, <laughs> so that so then I was like, "Okay, this is cool." <laughs> but how much of that was just feeling deviant and saying like, "Fuck these"? It wasn't. It was it was just because it sounded so good yeah, through through the gigantic system, you know. Right. Uh, like you can make the tiniest, like the tiniest just bow like. And it's just like the loudest thing. And if you're a compositional thinker, immediately yeah. your tail's going to start wagging at like, oh, what can I do with it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's super awesome. I mean, I remember a gig we did, uh, and Tim was there in 
somewhere in Germany. I don't remember. It was one of those places. And uh, something happened. There was like we were doing that Tartarland piece, and some maybe your bass, the amp was messed. Some, somebody had a piece of gear that wasn't fully functioning, and we kind of created this improvisation on stage while we were waiting for the piece of gear to be fixed. And I still remember that being like, oh, that was the best part of the night. Oh yeah. Yeah, that, well, I found that that kind of thing happens at shows a lot of the time. Um, you know, the shows that I play, yeah. where something breaks, and then, and then the, the half of the band that's not working on the problem has to, has to distract the audience, you know, mm -hmm. while the rest of you fix the problem. <laughs> it happens all the time. It happens all the time. <laughs> No, that was fun though. No, this was at a bigger place where like it, it felt a little like stakesier. <laughs> but so I want to ask you about something which I don't know that we've really talked about. Can you talk about Meriden, Connecticut? Yeah. Because, what do you want to know about Meriden? Because you're from a place like I'm not like I mm -hmm. moved around a lot, so I don't really feel like I'm from anywhere. But when I talk to people who are actually from somewhere, like you begin to kind of like, like when I talk to Trevor and Trey about Eureka, California. Yeah. Like you get a sense of who those guys are based on growing up in that crazy place. Yeah. And you've said, I've heard you say before that Meriden is not, like when I think about Connecticut, like I just imagine a bunch of rich white people. Well, those are the edges of Connecticut. Right. Not the middle of Connecticut. Which is where you're from. Yeah. And what was it like growing up there? Um, well, I went to, so I went to school. Well, okay. So um, um, when I was uh, like not in high school, Whatever, it doesn't matter because I was just going to school and just being at home. Right. Whatever. So then when I get into high school, I wasn't actually going to high school in Meriden because um, my parents wanted me to go to Catholic school and there was no Catholic school in Meriden. You want to know so, how, we got, how this music ended up happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I had to go out of town to right. go to school. And, um, but then, um, you know, for fun, um, um, my uh, my closest friends, uh, Greg Massey and Jason Byron, who um, you know still work with me on music and stuff. Um, uh, Greg was from New Britain, but Jason is from Meriden, so we'd ride the bus home. We'd hang out in Meriden. Um, we would go uh, over his house and then just explore abandoned stuff and um, and explore like the golf course at night and, yeah. and climb the local hill and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's just not really a mountain; it's just more like takes an hour to walk to the top kind of thing. Um, we, we would do stuff like that. We would set stuff on fire. Um, uh, there, we didn't like go to parties right. with like, kids at high school. We didn't do stuff like that. Right. We, we just like hung out and, and played guitar and made recordings and explored abandoned stuff. And that's, that's all we did. Um, spent a lot of time like in the woods, you know, mm -hmm. and... Um, uh, there's a lot of abandoned stuff around there. There must be a lot of abandoned stuff around everywhere, but I felt that there was particularly like a lot of abandoned stuff around where what, I was like, from. Like factories? Yeah, or? there was like factories. There's an abandoned mental institution. There's a mine. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Talk about the mental institution. Oh, well, it's called Connecticut Valley Hospital, uh -huh. and it's in Middletown, which is where, it's right near Western University. Yeah. And, um, and they, have, they have a lot of buildings, but one of the buildings had a fire some years ago or something, and so it was just completely abandoned. Um, and so, you know, you had, to, you had to break in, of course. Was there a mythology around it for you guys? No, but, um, but also Connecticut and Rhode Island and uh, around there, um, there are a lot of spots that are purportedly haunted. So we also spend a lot of time looking for ghosts and stuff like that. Did you find any? No, well, I have, I have, <laughs> I have one story that I, I don't really want to get into it. Right? It's really long, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> but I do have one really good story. Other than that, though, out of like the hundred places we went, like when we yeah. found shit, but, uh, but one thing was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. But that relationship that you formed with those guys was essentially about music? Yeah, because, you know, because uh, not only, like we were making music together later, but, um, but we also were talking about metal and listen to metal together. Yeah. And there weren't that many metalheads, there were just us. Right. And then there were like, uh, there was like these, this other faction of metalheads, like the Polish kids, that, uh, <laughs> that like, uh, like they only wanted to hang out with the other Polish kids. So. There's a Polish community there? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The town I went to high school was like mostly Polish. Okay. Uh, but anyway, like the Polish death metal kids, like they just wanted to hang out with the Polish death metal kids. And, <laughs> 
And they had like these tapes that came from Poland that were just like these shitty bootlegs. Right. Uh, <laughs> Wait, but, but do you? <laughs> but then there was like me and my two friends, and we uh, we would just go to Greg's house and play guitar and listen to Iron Maiden or whatever. So, do, are you guys familiar with a band called Maudlin of the Well? This was Toby's first band that was started with the guys that he's talking about, plus some other guys. And well, it's really just those two guys. And then when I and then years later when I got into college, it was. I added people, but right. it was really just the three of us. At when you, Hampshire College. Oh, yeah. yeah, it was cool. Cool place. When you think about the modeling of the Well Records, particularly like the first stuff, like how much does that feel like a representation of what you guys were experiencing in the woods and at the? Oh, it's all that, and and I mean, and even like the new record that we just did, like with these guys, uh, it's like half of it is about that, about Meriden. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's the, I was actually like thinking of calling the record "Return to Connecticut," but uh, <laughs> but uh, but I didn't. I, I didn't really think that like really anyone would understand that except except me and Tim and uh, Byron. But um, and also, it doesn't sound that cool. No, it's not a good day. Um, but yeah, you know, like I, I, whenever I go back there to visit my parents, I, I have the urge to kind of go into the the same woods and check out the same spots because yeah. um, I because I consider them to be sacred spots. You considered them to be sacred in hindsight, or as you were experiencing them? Oh, as we were experiencing, but still, they, they still are sacred to me. Yeah. Yeah. I watch the movie Stand By Me at least once a year. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you are one of my few friends that gets it. In we the way actually that- have something like that in Meriden that we would explore. There's this railroad track that goes through the woods, and it's abandoned. Uh, it's been abandoned for a long time, but there's these little trees growing out of the middle of the tracks and then when you get to the end of the tracks they just disappear into this water of a swamp so that's one of our sacred spots right. yeah it was a uh, uh, Brower Jim Brower was the <laughs> the kid's name which kid the one they find in the woods oh man I don't remember Brower we never I always wanted to, I, this is this can sound so irreverent but I always wanted to find a corpse um, or like, like just stumble upon it or yeah, like, yeah. go looking for it. Yeah, like you know, you know how like you always hear like, oh, there was a hiker and they found a corpse. You know what I mean? Like, or they I found, found a skull. Like we always wanted to. We're like, how'd that be so awesome? But we found a skull. Yeah, Chester Copperpot. Yeah, we wanted to. Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. Like that was something that we really, really wanted was to find. Did I tell you about when I, as a kid, what what did you find? A dead body. Uh, I, I, this sounds familiar, but you can tell me again. <laughs> so, is this about music? When I was growing up, I grew up on an ashram upstate, not far from here. Yeah. And there was one day, it was uh, me and Josh from Russell Daughters and some mm-hmm. other people. We were hanging out, it was a boring summer day, and we're sitting by the main house. There's a lake on the ashram, and I see a cop car pull up. And the cop walks in. And right in front of us, there's like three or four of us, eight, nine years old. He goes, uh, yeah, where's the dead body? <laughs> <laughs> and my mom, she's like, oh, Jesus Christ, could you please a little bit further away? And then we over here say, oh, it's down in the lake. It's down in the lake. Oh. So we all beeline for the lake. And uh, there was a guy who he, he committed suicide in the lake. He, he was one of the ashram guys? Yeah. He was like a... Oh, know. so some of you knew. I didn't know. Oh, okay. But he'd been in there for like three days. Oh. And I'd already seen Stand By Me, and I was waiting for my experience, and it was not as pleasing as the film was. Oh, but, it, but in the film, I mean, remember when they find it, and they're just like, oh, this isn't cool. Yeah. You know, they thought it was going to be cool the whole time, and then they find it, and they're like, oh, this is fucked up. Remember that? Like, that's yeah. kind of the most important part. So you just made a record out of this music. <laughs> How many records have you made now? 20? I don't know. No, more than that. I, 30? Not. Of your own music? Um, I, I don't know. You still get off on it. Yeah, I mean, that's all I do. You're really decisive in the studio. Yeah. Has it always sure. been, like, if you're in the studio with Toby, like, it, he gets a lot done in one day. And I can't make, like, I make a record and it takes me eight months to, you know, just do overdubs. It's, it's absurd. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Touche. Well, yeah. I, I think that I've uh, just just become that way just because um, I always have to work with, with really, really meager budgets. So I, right. I've trained myself to just get stuff done fast Yeah. and not relax at all. I would love to relax and see it would be so cool. Would you? Would you though? Yeah, I would love that. Really? Yeah. Do you always record in the same place? No. Do you, what, how do you choose your studios? Um, 
Well, it's, uh, I, I choose my studios based on um, if I know somebody that is involved with it or if I know a record that came from there. Um, what studio was that? Oh yeah, that's Martin BC's place. Yeah. In, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Martin, of course, has done a lot of amazing records, and even records by friends of ours that yeah. they they all have amazing things to say. I've never you actually been to the right of, studio for the for the record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the, the music has a lot to do with. Um, sorry, the the opposite. The the studio has a lot to do with how the music ends up sounding. Um, so so like for example. Uh, two, two, I think, really opposite guys that I work with. One is Randall Dunn. I mm -hmm. work with him a lot. And then the other guy, Mark Roselli, that we've worked with a lot. I feel like those guys are super opposite because, um, because like, you go into Mark Roselli and, and he kind of gets the music to sound pretty much exactly how it's performed. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't color it in any way. Um, I'm sure he could if you wanted him to, but, like, his, his tendency is to not. And then Randall, on the other hand, it, it, you go and record with him, and then the music ends up sounding like, like not like how it was played. You know, it ends up sounding like just there's all this extra texture, and and that and that it has like a whole other dimension to it. And um, and uh, and so as a composer, you got to know like, oh, it, how is this music gonna um, ultimately work the best? Is it gonna work the best if it's if it's got all this extra like, color? Or is it going to work the best if it's like very stark? And so, between those two guys, that's how I would choose to work with those two guys. For example, mm -hmm. I guess. I feel like I've yeah. made records in the wrong studios before. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And I've made records in the right studios. And once you you know the difference, like mm -hmm. it's. I'm doing my first one. Where are you doing it? Caesar's Palace. Solo. Yeah. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's, it's your first record? Yeah. I mean, you'll hate it in like six weeks, but. <laughs> but you have a day and a half to track it. I mean, I, I will tell you right now, let's talk about this because I, my first record, if I had a genie come to me right now and he was like, you can wish for anything, I might just like recall all the copies of it from like everyone who ever had it. <laughs> Which, bad, big explanation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's something, but you, I, I feel like you have to do that. Like, what was your first re like recorded output that that someone paid money for and got? Uh, Modeling the Well, for, like the first record, which actually was a demo. It was a demo that I recorded, and then when the label picked it up, they were like, "Oh, let's just release that." And so we went into a studio and just like kind of remixed it in a nice studio. Uh huh. Um, but it's still like my demos, you know what I mean? I, but, I, you know, but I know you prefer the demo sometimes. Oh, yeah, but in this case, it was like, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> no. Anyway, like people, people like that record. Sure. But, but for me, I'm like, oh man, this is like these demos that were recorded shitty and then, and then had some like gloss put on them. But you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. But do you feel like it's important for to have something early on out there that pretty quickly in hindsight, sorry to turn this into this, um, you, you sort of have some regret around. Like, I feel like you probably have less and less regret about records as you get better at making them. Yeah, I mean, I mean. Um, but what do you I, learn from regret? I don't, know, I don't know if it's important to put out a record that you regret, but, right. I, but I think it is important to, to write music that you regret because I think anybody that's writing music has to get all their derivative stuff out first before they before they realize what they sound like. Mm -hmm. um, all the first stuff that you write is going to sound like your influences. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And then uh, I do know what you're saying. Yeah, and then and then after you do like a few records, then then you have your own sound, and then you want to erase all the ones that came first. Yeah, but you can't. <laughs> it's funny. I, I had this conversation with um, Chris Corsano, the drummer. And we have this thing about like, do you, is it harder for you to listen to records that you just made or records that you made, you know, a thousand years ago? Mm -hmm. And his response was that the records from a thousand years ago, he's much more forgiving because the person that made them was this like naive whippersnapper where if like mm -hmm. he listens to a record from this year and he feels like it's not that great, he sure. kind of beats himself up more. Yeah, I totally understand that. Sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. 
I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little older than me, so it's like probably a little better for him. But I mean, it's maddening. Like when you fucking put that last piece of the puzzle in, you know, and say, oh, this record's done and it's great. It's the best thing I could have done. When your budget runs out. (laughs) (laughs) Or you die. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, you, like you could make you could make records that you uh, that you just tweak forever. But then, but then you let's say you tweak a record for two years, and then by the time those two years are up, that record doesn't represent you at all. Yeah. And and then you don't even want to like put it out. So so it's better to kind of do a record and and have that record represent that moment and and finish it before that moment is gone because then that record will cease to represent that moment. You're right, and it's horrifying too, because the long, it can start feeling like quicksand. Like if you don't, I, I just finished a record that it, I, I recorded it honestly like 12 times before I got the version of it that I felt good about, and it has been weighing on me so unpleasantly for the last two years. Um, and I realized now I just need to get it done so it stops making me wanna, you know? Sure. Yeah, you mean that that uh, new solo record, record yeah. that you did? Yeah. Yeah. You you gotta just you gotta just um, just bite the bullet and and accept what it is. Because let's say, for example, if you could make something better, let's say let's say you do a record and then you're like, oh, but I know I can do something better than this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not gonna put this one out, and I'm just gonna do the better thing, and then when you do the better thing, you're gonna be like, yeah, but I can do better, and then you're gonna do the better thing. So why don't you just put the one out and then, then do the better one? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Otherwise, you're just gonna be one of those guys that never puts out a record. We know people like yeah. that. <laughs> Did you have a question? Yeah, or- um, I'm curious, when in your career do you think you found, you sounded more like you and less like your influences? Oh, um, hmm. I don't know, that's like maybe not something to ask me. It's maybe something to ask somebody else, but um, I don't know because because occasionally I I try to make a record that's um, that's like a an homage, you know, and then like I actually do that a lot, and and then then there's a question about like oh, this record that was done deliberately as an homage, does it still sound like me, or does it sound like? the person that I'm trying to pay homage to, homage to, whatever. But, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you, put, you can deliberately put some of yourself in and then deliberately take from something else. And then, and then the question about like, um, well, okay, let me back up. I can simplify this by saying there are a lot of times when I say, oh, I'm going to write a pop song. And then I try it. And I'm like, hey, everybody, here's my pop song. And then everyone's just like, mm, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> that's not a pop song. Anyway, so there you go. You know, it's like it, you can try as hard as you can to try to sound like something else, but I guess, I guess it just won't once you reach that point. Well, I, I mean, I've seen that happen with you a, yeah. a few times. I remember Toby used to have this rehearsal space literally like a block from here, and this was like ten years ago. I got a call from him. He's like, "Man, you got to come out here. I got this bass, and I figured out this like this sound. It's going to be like my sound." And I came out over, and he had this crazy looking red five-string bass from the 80s. Remember that bass, Tim? And he'd figured out the sound with his pedals and his amps that sounded kind of like the guy from The Cure, Mm -hmm. the chorus pedal. And he's like, this is it, this is it. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is it. And it quickly, like, I I can, because, you know, I'm familiar with your music, I can say, oh, that's the sound of the bass that's on Coyote or, Mm -hmm. but it, 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 it didn't stay on that surface level very long. Very quickly, it was synthesized into greater compositional ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, but I felt like that, like, oh, I, I found the sound of, like, that bass sound was just, like, it was just a jumping off point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then, and then it gave me a lot of ideas because I think at the time, um, at, at that time, nobody was really revisiting that bass sound at all. I hadn't really heard it since, since uh, the Cure's 80s albums. Mm-hmm. Nobody else was doing it. And then, um, and then uh, and I was like, oh, I'm going to make some, like, weird avant-garde shit with this bass sound. Uh, that'll be cool. Um, and then, but nowadays you can hear that bass sound everywhere. So it's just kind of like coming back. Yeah. Um, which is fine because still nobody, nobody does it in, in a sort of like 
avant way. Right. I was just telling uh, somebody earlier today. Oh, it was, I think it was Randall. No, I don't know. Or I don't know who I was telling. I, I was just having this conversation with somebody today or yesterday, where um, where you could like simplify the sound of of Kodot and even like Tartalam two and stuff like that. It's basically avant garde goth. It's basically all I wanted to do was have like a spooky, moody band, but have the music be sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And and it's such a basic idea, but I never hear bands do that ever, 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 ever. Right. Uh, there's lots of spooky, moody bands out there now, especially goth is like pretty big right now. Mm-hmm. But nobody's like making it nerdy, <laughs> at all. You know, like and nobody's like nobody's having doing like technical goth. Right. You know, like except us. It's just it's just dumb. <laughs> I mean, just, <laughs> I, I mean, because it's like it, you could go so many places with that, right? I you know, you would have what? Yeah. Yeah. There just aren't there just aren't any like proggy. Yeah, you did. Nineteen ninety-six. No, not really. No. I mean, I mean, Mother on the Wall was making demos, but it right. was, but Mother on the Wall is like prog metal. Yeah. It wasn't really avant-garde goth until Kyoto. Right. Yeah. Do you guys have any questions? Do you guys want to ask Toby anything? All right. <laughs> That's fine with me. <laughs> um, see, I don't, I don't want to leave anything out now that I've got you here. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There's CD, vinyl, digital. Um, I think I think I have I have a new band now that I think it, it might be pretty appropriate for tape. Yeah, it is. It is, and and I generally think it's kind of dumb because it sounds bad, but um, but it's cool. You're gonna make a tape? It's nerdy. <laughs> it's it's nerdy. It's cool, um, and. I like how it makes things kind of sound really murky. Um, that kind of makes the music sound a little more distant and mysterious. Um, you know, especially in these days when you have you have all these musician friends and they're like, okay, I did a record and now it's on Bandcamp, yeah. and, uh, and 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 I'm on social media telling you about my record, and it's the kind of same thing where you're like at a venue and you're all hanging out, and then you're like, hey, excuse me, I have to go play now. And then you step up on stage, and then you get off stage after the show, and you're like, "Okay, everybody, how you doing?" Uh, it's just, it's just there's there's this like closeness that is cool in in a way, but I think tape reminds you of um, of the distance you have with artists. What reminds me anyway of when I was uh, you know in like seventh grade and I had um, a cassette that I would find of a band, I would just go randomly buy it from the record store, and then I'd put it on and. And you you didn't know anything about the band, and you didn't know you don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. You just got it randomly, and, mm-hmm. and it's just this kind of like portal to yeah. to another universe. Mm-hmm. And I think that when when music is like a little when it's when you're too close to the artist now, you don't really have that kind of portal so much anymore. No yeah, you lose you lose a little bit of mystery. So so anyway, so I think I, I have this new industrial band called Piggy Black Cross. Yeah, with my girlfriend Bridget, mm-hmm. and um, and I think we're gonna put out tape. That makes sense. That. Yeah, I mean, I, I still remember my first Skinny Puppy tape, and yeah, I, that needed to be on tape. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like that, um, and you know, and then we'll also put out a better sounding version, but but you know, we'll, we'll do a tape. Do you? I, I'm trying to wrap my head around something, and maybe you can help me with this because it feels like because no one. Because the physical document is so unimportant to most people now, um, that should be a good thing that we celebrate. No? It's like there's no barrier to getting your music into someone's hand yeah. completely free of, of any you know, outside imposed structure, which is it could be of any length. Mm-hmm. You can get it into people's ears, you know, theoretically, mm-hmm. the second you're done recording it. Yeah, but people like us were always like moaning that you know that the 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 death of that um, way of of disseminating music to people is is, is bumming us out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm trying to I mean, like, like on paper it sounds like we should be really happy about everything. No, it's cool. Um, no, I think it has its pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fifty fifty. Whatever, it's it's fifty percent good, fifty percent bad. 
Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't really. Uh, I don't really like try to concern myself with that problem too much. I'm not gonna like try. I'm not gonna be the guy that solves that problem. So, <laughs> so I'm not gonna like. I'm, I'm not gonna waste my energy like almost being the guy that like cares about that problem. Right. And then and then being like, oh, but no, I don't care. I'm just gonna say I don't. I care, but like I'm not gonna. It's somebody else's job. Whatever. Yeah. It's not my job. I'm just gonna like make some cool records. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you can do. Yeah. Right. Let, let, I mean, yeah, okay, so hang on. So, but, but then again, if you let, if you're just like, oh, let's let the business people work it out, then of course they're gonna do something shitty. There's just a bunch uh, of green fucks. Yeah, like. yeah, so, so then in that regard, you have to be like artist driven. No, we have to come up with a solution. But maybe some other artist, not me. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to come up with a solution for that. I've, I've made my peace with that. Yeah. You'll yeah. Does oh, it depends on what the decision is. <laughs> like, I'm not going to subscribe to title. You know? That's stupid. Title is the Jay-Z owned... Um, uh, yeah. So, you know what I mean? I'm, I mean, I can make decisions about stuff like that. Right. But, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I like I like making records. I like I like making a physical record. I like looking at them. I like touching them. I like smelling them. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't like carrying them around and having them in my house because <laughs> I have so many. <laughs> Every time you move, you just have a whole truck worth, you know. I I've that first record I was saying where I wish I could recall it. I mm -hmm. threw about six hundred, seven hundred copies of it in the garbage when I moved last. Mm -hmm. Felt great. <laughs> Well, you know, so another, another thing, reason why it's so good to have that stuff is for archival purposes, you know, because I, I like imagining a time when, uh, you know, in the near future when everything floods um, and, and, you know, ev all of our knowledge was digital. And so, um, you know, we have no record of anything. We have no knowledge. And, and maybe, maybe like the, the most recent human learning that we have a record of is like, in the 90s and then everything we've learned after the 90s is gone because because it was all digital and uh you know and every photo that you've ever taken of like your wedding and of your life and all uh -huh. the shit like that it's just gone um you know what i mean and so having a, a rec like a you know a vinyl that's not digital that's cool because okay so did I ever tell you the the L. Ron Hubbard story that Trey told me? I'm listening. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you this this story, but this is this kind of goes along with what I was just saying because it's important to have an archive. So like kind of like summed up version of the story, and, and if he hears this, he's probably gonna say I got some details wrong. But something like this. So Greg Turkington, who is also known as uh, Neil, Neil Hamburger, Hamburger. Uh, like ran a label and he was putting out records, and he and he'd been manufacturing vinyl with the same plant in San Diego or L.A. for a decade. So mm -hmm. he's putting on this new record and he's like, oh, you know, I, um, I've been working with this plant for 10 years. I want to maybe go visit them because I'm going to be in LA anyway, or San Diego or whatever. And, uh, and so he called them and he's like, hey, I've been making records with you for a decade. Can I tour your plant? And they were like, yeah, um, come on, we'll give you a tour. So he, they're giving him a tour of the plant. And, um, and then as the tour is ending, he sees another building um, off in the yard. And he's like, what's that building? And the guy giving the tour is like, oh, check this out. And they brings him over the building, and it's a, and it's this whole other plant where it's just Mexicans making cutting records and like checking the audio, and uh, and he's like, okay, here's what's happening here. Um, these this 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 section of the plant is like basically leased by Scientology, and with their cutting records of L. Ron Hubbard's speeches, and. Um, and you know it's all Mexicans working there because they have to check the audio quality, but not understand what he's actually saying, so they don't really know what they're working on. And uh, and uh, and and they're pressing all of the um, the records to gold records, and then they're burying them in vaults in random spots around the world, so that in the future, when uh, when everything is destroyed and there's a future civilization, they're like digging shit up. They find these Elrond Hubbard speeches and. and uh, and then they, they think that he's like a very important person. <laughs> this is for real? That's what I, I was told. I mean, anyhow, like, that's why I like putting out records. <laughs> you and L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. Oh, thank you. 
But yeah, you know, a vinyl one is going to get destroyed, of course, so I, I need to start making gold ones. Or something that. Yeah, something that is on very heavy. Uh, yeah, something that's yeah. not going to warp. All right. Yeah. But you know what I mean, right? I know what you mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, like you, it's, it's important to not have shit on digital uh, for that very reason, if for no other reason. I was just thinking the other day about how, um, how easily we, um, we lose knowledge because I saw that there was this video online, um, how to fold a fitted sheet. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, I can't believe people need to learn that now. Like, come on, like when did humans learn how to fold a fitted sheet? Do you know how to do it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. Wait, 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 what's your, wait, what is, what is folding? The point sheets? of what I'm saying is that it's like a pr super primitive thing that, that now there's videos being like, hey, did, did, here's a life hack. Fold a sheet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, we like we learned that a long time ago. Everybody should know this. But are you, are you saying that there's a joy in not knowing something and then figuring out how to do it? No, not at all. That's, that has nothing to do with what I was saying. I was just saying that. I was just saying that. That like you can you can look at the internet and see how how current generations don't have basic knowledge. Like and, are. Yeah, they just they just don't have like knowledge that should be that should be knowledge that we've accumulated over thousands of years of actually being human. You shouldn't have to have a video teaching somebody how to fold a sheet. Is what I'm saying. And and it, right. and it's like it's it's kind of the same thing as like you you know. If there's like a historical event that's that's very important, like like okay, imagine imagine like 20 years from now, there's a video that's like, hey, did you guys ever hear that there was this guy called Hitler? Wow, oh my god, you know, like that could ha that could happen, that could happen based right. on like shit that's going on, like people are just forgetting stuff, right? You know, and and yeah, the historical thing is is like a, a serious one, but it's also like as dumb as like here's how you here's how you make sure that you're like your eggs don't go bad. You know, here's how you fold a sheet. Um, and music too, it's like, you know, you can have like a one, five, six progression and people still think that like that's something. Right. You know what I mean? Whereas like, no, we learned that a long time ago. Like, you don't need to learn this again. That this is a, that this is a song. You know what I mean? <laughs> we already know that that's a song. That's a song. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, anyway. But is, is wait, are, are you... <laughs> Are you saying that people need to know how to make like a blues song or that like you need to stop worrying about a blues song? I'm saying that like if somebody comes out and it's like, check out my new song. And then it's that. And then everyone's like, oh my God. Well, what? I mean, okay. So what you're talking about is the fact that people love shit. No, well, no, 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 no. I'm talking about how they don't know. They don't know that it's that it's old. I got in an argument with yeah, someone the other day, yeah. and I realized I sounded like a jerk, but someone, we were talking about, somehow Cardi B came up. You guys know Cardi I B? Love yeah. Her. Don't say anything bad about Cardi B. <laughs> I, I don't like Cardi B, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. I just, uh, maybe we should just wrap it up. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you talking. Yeah, man. Thanks thank for you for me. playing. And yeah. thank you guys. Thanks for being here, everybody.